I think you will agree with me after I read them that amongst the strongest words that the Lord Jesus spoke, Matthew 10, verse 34, do not think, remember Jesus is speaking to his disciples as he prepares them for mission and us, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Strong words, strong words from the Lord Jesus. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand them and to apply them to our lives corporately as a church. Remember, the primary application through Matthew's gospel is corporately to us as a church, but also to our lives as individuals. So let's pray and ask for that help. Our Father, these are indeed strong words from the Lord Jesus, calling us to participate in His mission, the King's mission, on His terms. We pray that as a church and as individual Christians, we will be worthy of Jesus, an uncompromised allegiance to Him and a clear understanding that we are privileged representatives of Jesus in the world. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot ever lose. That is the call that is the logic of the call of the kingdom. That is the logic of participation in the mission of the king. And so we pray that we will understand, that we will trust, and that we will obey for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now today we conclude a series, this term, in Matthew chapters 10, 11, and 12. And I want to do two things. I want to uh, speak on these verses we read in particular, but set them in the context of this section that we might understand the gist and the heart of the bigger chunk of Matthew 10 to 12. Every single block in Matthew, chapters 10 to 12, no exception, is 
a step towards the concluding words or exhortation in the gospel. Let me remind you, maybe you can flick forward to the end of the gospel, of Matthew's conclusion or the point or purpose of everything he has written. Chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that is our commission as a church. That is our commission as individual Christians. It is a commission, a commission, if you like, to participate with Jesus in his mission. It is the commission the Lord Jesus gives to every local church, not some. It is the commission the Lord Jesus gives to every Christian. It is his commission on his terms. And I guess our obedience to Jesus' commission is perhaps more than anything else the test that proves our genuineness or not. That does not mean that failure means we are not genuine. If it did, then every church and every Christian were not genuine. Every church, every Christian struggles in their, his or her commitment to the king's mission. And we need to keep coming back to the king that he might recommission us. And he will. And he does. Every time. To struggle, therefore, or fail in our commission is one thing. But not to take up the king's commission is quite another thing. If a church will not take up the king's commission on the king's terms, they are not worthy to be called a church. I mean, that's the logic of what Jesus says. And likewise, if someone calling themselves to be a Christian is not willing to take up the king's commission on the king's terms, they are not, and they are extraordinary words of Jesus, they are not worthy of Jesus. They are not worthy to take his name and be called a Christian. Now, Matthew chapters 8 to 10 is a key section in preparing his disciples, his followers for mission. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about Jesus. And just see the chunk, chapters 8, 9, and 10. They're preparing us to listen and respond to that commission at the end of the gospel. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 is preparation for that mission. And chapters 8 and 9 are not about us. They're not about Chalmers Church are not about any of our new members, are not about any of us and our commission to mission. They are about Jesus and his mission, about his authority, his mission, his message. And that is the right order. And we always get that order wrong. It is his mission we participate in. So every time we have a guest event and we say, let's invite somebody along, we immediately think, us invite then Jesus. The reality is Jesus is at work in his mission out there in the world, and we are engaging in what he is doing. It is his mission. 
we participate in. And that is front-ended in this section, chapters 8, chapters 9. And then you get that little bridge in verses 35 to 38 of chapter 9, where the focus shifts from the Lord Jesus to us and our participation. So chapter 9, verse 37, just look at that. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. It's one of the good things, and uh, this is not kind of spinning a situation. One of the good things about the streets being packed this morning and you couldn't get a parking space, it just reminds you that there are all these queens of people in the city. Normally on Sundays, we're all asleep. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out his workers into his harvest. We are the laborers. We are the workers. The church, a church is a worker for the gospel. And we are workers as individual Christians. But notice as you stand on that bridge in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38, that you are leaning always to the left-hand side of the bridge because it is to Jesus we pray that he will send out people into his mission field. And then with it clear in our minds that it's his mission and he is at work and his authority is with us, we get to chapter 10, Jesus teaching on our participation in his mission. And Jesus says to his apostles, And through his apostles to the church and through the church down the generations to us, this is what it is going to be like out there on the ground as you take out, as you tell out that gospel. Listen to what I'm teaching you so that when it happens, you will not be surprised. And if it doesn't happen, you'll be worried. And you'll keep going and you'll persevere to the end because it's worth it. Now, let me just... uh, kind of sail over at height, numbers one, two, and three there. They've been preached thoroughly by Sam and Scott, but let me just put it in context. As he prepares them and us for mission, he begins with the church's great commission. That's, uh, I think, what 10, 1 to 15 is. His focus is on establishing the church through the ministry of the apostles, whose job it is to teach the gospel and to authenticate that by uh, doing what Jesus did the authority he gives them to perform miracles, to to give us the gospel in their writings. Uh, Now, just mark this. Just pause. Put a line on your notes if you're writing and, and write this. What is the church on the earth? Not even what does it do. What is the church on the earth? What is a local church? And by that, we mean the people, the community, not a building. Who are we? We are the means of mission on the earth. Or let me just make it even more fundamental. We are Jesus' mission. We, that's who we are. We are, we are, and we get to the end of the chapter. We are His representatives on the earth. To every local church, the Lord's commission is to go and tell the gospel, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus is commanded. And that is why the number one mission strategy in the Bible, the number one mission strategy in the Bible is planting churches. We've got to get our heads clear on that in a time where you drive around a city, and of course we inherit the 
all that Christendom has delivered in the West, every street corner there's a church. And we don't think, therefore, that the number one strategy is planting churches, but most of them are dead. They're dead. The number one strategy in the Bible for mission is more mission, which means more churches. We're going to look at Titus in the summer, and Paul's message to Titus is to go and find leaders and plant lots of churches in every town across the region of Crete. Church planting in our time, and you'll have heard Andy Robertson say this, has become novel and trendy. Our job is to keep Andy as normal and boring. If church planting in our country remains novel and trendy rather than normal and boring, the mission of the king will not advance in the next generation or two. Okay, the church's great commission. I was thinking this week that it would be great if someone wrote a hymn. There's a great hymn, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Sam, you need to write one. The church's great commission is to that tune, okay? Number two, perseverance in adversity. Every church, that's 1625, every church, every Christian engaged in the mission of the king is instructed, and there is realism in what Jesus says to persevere in adversity. Opposition, persecution will come. Now, in many parts of the world, it is inherently dangerous to be a Christian, a Christian church. And when Christians or Christian churches in these contexts engage in Jesus' mission, there is persecution, often the loss of liberty or the loss of life. That is normal, Jesus says. The persecuted church is not a tiny part of the church. It is much of the church, indeed most of the church in the world. The persecuted church is the other side of the coin of the living church. Very often where there is such persecution, there is a commitment to mission, a commitment to persevere in adversity that is striking. Now, in our context, it is tough to be a Christian in public life, as we have seen this week. It's a haunting statement when a politician says, and it is discussed on Newsnight momentarily, of course, it's now relegated, you cannot be an evangelical Christian and hold an office in public life anymore in this country. It is tough to be a Christian in public life. I was on Tim Farron's Facebook page this week, and he has 37,000 followers. And all manner of Christians were writing encouragement to him. It is tough to be a Christian in public life. It is tough to be a Christian in the playground at school. Just as tough. Direct hostility against Christians who hold to the simple gospel and to the word of God. Direct hostility against churches who hold to the simple gospel and to the word of God. And it's here. And I think 10 years ago, had I said that, ministers would be saying, it's coming. But now it's here. And the Lord Jesus said, don't be surprised. 
If church planting needs to become normal, so also is the need to come to terms with the fact that suffering for the sake of the gospel is normal. Perseverance in adversity, and then 26 to 33, fearless acknowledgement of Jesus. And uh, Scott spoke so movingly on these verses, uh, wonderful verses. Let me just read a couple. I think they're marvelous verses. What I listen to these verses, those of you who have become members, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him. The only person to fear is the one who holds your mortal flesh, your body, and your soul. Do not fear anyone who can only get your body and not touch your soul. And then these wonderful words, if if the Lord Jesus or God is able to be concerned if two sparrows, I mean, what are two sparrows? Two a penny, that's where it comes from, worth nothing, fall to the ground. Is he not going to have his arms under you? How many hairs, Lawrence, are on your head? More than mine. (laughs) 22,635. Who knows? God knows. Isn't that astonishing? Two weeks ago, we were on Gullen Beach. The Lord knows how many grains of sand are on that beach. He knows everything. Perseverance and adversity, fearless acknowledgement of Jesus. These are the marks of the genuine Christian. These are the marks of genuine churches. What if they describe us, you, me, perseverance and adversity, fearless acknowledgement of Jesus? I think they do. If there's a real spirit in you and in us as a church, perseverance and adversity, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, uh, not because of some kind of stoical rod that's bashing your back or because you're Scottish. Although we did beat Australia yesterday and we are ranked four in the world. which means that we might win the next World Cup. But you keep going if you're genuine and real because you're genuine and real. And fearless acknowledgement of Jesus in public life in our country. What did Tim Farron do? He said, my allegiance to my king is more important than my power on this earth. And I think in his heart there was a genuine contrition of what he had been forced to say. I mean, what politician in public life signs off their resignation speech with a quote from when I survey the wondrous cross? What is it that demands my soul, my life, and my all? Jesus. Uncompromised allegiance to him. Verses 34 to 39. Let's read them again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace with a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, don't, there's no wriggle room for us. There's no wriggle room to think this is kind of the Billy Graham time of Christian. 
I mean, think of how the very the passage ends right at the bottom. Anyone who gives a cup of water to somebody in my name, it's the same category. This is all of us. This is normal Christianity. We need to keep in mind always that Jesus is speaking to those he is instructing for mission, the apostles, the early church, and in time us. Now, the main point here, I think, is that gospel divides. It divides our closest human relationships. A man and his father, a mother and daughter. I guess to some extent we have all experienced this, and to some of us very deeply and at great cost. Someone converted at university goes home, and these aren't hypothetical situations, for the holidays and tells their parents they've become a Christian, and their parents will not accept it. They are hostile. They say something like, it's just a phase. But the problem is it's not. Their son or daughter has been converted to Christ, and there is a division, and it's real, and it's deeply painful. And you can see why there is such division, because following Jesus as your Savior and Lord and not following him as your Savior and Lord are polar opposites. One is in the kingdom of God with one set of value systems. One is in the kingdom of this world with another set of value systems. And there is a fundamental division. Verse 37 explains in more detail why there is such a division. And that is because allegiance to Jesus ranks above our closest human relationships. Now, bear with me on this verse. It is searching yet wonderful at the same time. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is Jesus speaking. He is to be your first love. We are to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength before anyone or anything else. And so, Christian or Christian church, do you love the Lord Jesus more than anyone else? And for many of us sitting here, the person sitting beside us. If not, you're not worthy of him. Now, this, I think, is most difficult, most painful for a parent, for example, when their son or daughter is not a Christian, or for a son or daughter when their parents are Christian, or a husband and wife when one or the other is not a Christian. Jesus is to be our first love, and so the gulf can widen. Let me say this. None of what Jesus is saying is that the love we have in these close relationships, parent, child, child, parent, husband, wife, is not important, whether or not both or one or other is a Christian. The love we have in these close relationships is good, it is wonderful, but it's second to our love for Jesus. I wonder if this is true. I read this somewhere, and it sounds, well, I thought it sounded too good to be true, but I think it is true. If we do love Jesus more than anyone else, does it really diminish our love for those we are closest to? Does it not rather enrich it? And deepen it. If I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, will I not love my parents with the honor I am to show them, whether or not they are Christians, more deeply? I think so. 
Here's another practical application from verse 37 in relation to the theme of the chapter, the call to mission or instruction about mission. Now, from what others have said to me over the years and what I have seen personally over the years, the single most common reason a person who is gifted for full-time Christian work, ministry, or overseas mission, whatever it is, a person who is appropriately gifted and has a desire to follow such a path, the single most common reason they don't is because a close tie to them is closer than their tie to Jesus. Because of love for someone. Or the fear of losing someone's love. So a good example of that is Vaughn Roberts, who is a prominent Christian leader and a very gifted Bible teacher. When he announced that he was going to become a minister, not his family, but many of his friends were deeply, deeply skeptical. And to say that didn't tug at someone's heart is not true or fair. It does. A wife or a father... Or a mother who says to somebody, no, to Christian work or mission. And that person, out of love for them, says no to Jesus. And many of these people, years later, there is deep regret that they didn't give their first love and first loyalty to Jesus. See, in the Christian life, whatever the decision is, about giving our first love and loyalty to Jesus. The implications when you stack them up and you write them down in a list, you might be list writers, you know, you write down what are the implications of me giving my first loyalty to Jesus as a church or as an individual when it comes to this, that, or the other in life. You write down the list and it's long. And it's a daft decision, always, always, always. But every time you make the decision, what does God do? He provides. What does He say in His Word? Whoever leaves A, B, C, or D, for me and for the gospel's sake, I will give them in this life this, 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 and this back to them and life eternal. But the list will never look like you should do it, ever. Verses 38 and 39 are much more general, a call to every Christian, to every Christian church. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What kind of church do you want to be part of? Do you want to shape? Do you want to be the kind of church that follows in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus? What does that mean? It doesn't mean go on a pilgrimage to find yourself. It means to take up your cross, his cross, or the cross, and with a selfless heart do everything we can for the sake of the mission of the king. The most unhappy Christians, and let me just be honest with you, some of you might be in that category, the most unhappy Christians are the Christians who serve the least. The most unhappy Christians are the Christians who wrestle with their allegiance to the king, fundamentally. Do we want to be part of a church that does everything we can for the sake of the mission of the king in this city where the harvest is plentiful? Are we willing for the sacrifice and selfless commitment to be the people who will go out into the harvest fields that are ripe? And I, I feel that really strongly as the minister of the church. God has given so much back 
to us. We must do all we can for his kingdom in this city. You know, one of the things that I didn't anticipate as we thought about the south of the city and church planting is that when you stand out there on the steps, you, you look up the road, which is the artery that goes right up the city. And, and I, I kind of often think it would be nice if we could see like a steeple. Now, we're not going to build a church with a steeple, but you know what I mean. Churches, we need to do that. All it will cost is money and effort and time and and we'll not do it if we can't find these things. But let's not lay our heads down in our pillows in 20 years and say we had a chance and we didn't. And then over the years, Chalmers Church forgot all that God had done for them and we began to drift and we grew big and fat and lazy. Or go to the nations of the earth where that prayer in 937 to 38 is so relevant. You know, just take a look at the church in China and the huge need for workers and pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send them out and maybe send us. And what about us as individuals, as Christian believers? What does uncompromising allegiance to Jesus look like? Following Jesus in his mission to the world, loving him more than anything else, selflessly committing to his mission more than anything else, what will we leave behind for the sake of participating in the mission of Jesus? Is it ambition or pleasures or possessions or reputations or comfort? Whoever does not take his cross up and follow me is not worthy to call themselves a Christian church or to call themselves a Christian. Is it worth it? Does allegiance to Jesus really rank above all else? Yes, it is worth it. It is so worth it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what that means is, I think, a life lived for me now will be a life lost for all eternity. A life lost for me now in this world for the sake of Jesus and his mission will mean a life lived forever with Jesus. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot ever lose. These are the words of Jim Elliot, I think, who gave his life for Jesus' sake. And, of course, the danger there is the super-Christian again. Let me apply. Here's a good mission statement for Chalmers Church. They are no fools who give up what they cannot keep in order to gain what they cannot ever lose. Finally, verses 40 to 42, and what a great way to end the chapter, to end these instructions for mission. We are the privileged representatives of Jesus. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, the context helps us, I think, understand these verses. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about their participation in his mission. And to be fair, up to this point in chapter 10, it's not all been a walk in the park or indeed a brilliant recruitment campaign. Perseverance in adversity, fearless acknowledgement, uncompromised allegiance to Jesus. 
But now listen to this. When you are speaking to someone about the Lord Jesus, and they give you a hearing, they welcome you into their life. They are not just receiving you, but Jesus and God the Father who sent Jesus. And you see the connection, God the Father sent God the Son who sent you to be his representative in his mission. And often when we talk about God's salvation or mission, God the Father sent God the Son to die, to be raised, and one day God will send God the Son back. There's something missing. God the Father sends God the Son who sends the apostles to create the church, who sends us as representatives of Christ on the earth. And then the sons return. And what a privilege, what a responsibility, what a joy. How exciting is that? It is. It really it is. It is. Isn't it? You and I are the representatives of Jesus in Morningside along with other living churches. We are privileged representatives. Whatever job we do, whatever street we live in, Verse 41 is a slightly different angle. Jesus is instructing his disciples, so they must be the prophets, I think, and the righteous people he's referring to. I think he's saying that whoever receives you welcomes me for who you are and faith in Jesus. I think what he's saying is that when people receive you in the sense of when they come to faith and you are the person that God has used to help them come to faith, I think what he's reminding us of, of the greatest privilege of all, which is to be his representatives at the moment the God of heaven intersects with a human life on the earth. The greatest of all privileges is not a privilege afforded to God the Son. The greatest of all privileges is afforded to ordinary Christian believers to be the people who bring in the harvest. How gracious is that of Jesus to allow us to be the people who tell people about him and see them come to faith. And what of verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's as if this great chapter on mission ends with a whimper. Except it doesn't. See how it began the chapter? Jesus in the middle of a storm on a lake, you know, with crashing waves and raging wind, and he calms the storm with a word. What's his last word in his instruction and mission? Whoever gives one of my disciples a drink. I will bless him. And so we're not left thinking the only person who fits the bill is Billy Graham or someone like him or at least someone else, but not us. Jesus is saying everyone is called to this mission, whoever you are, whatever you do, the least significant thing like giving someone a drink for someone because you are my disciple, a follower of Jesus, that blesses me and that blesses you. The little ones, who are the little ones? Well, I think the little ones in the Bible mean the least, the marginal, like the homeless fellow who came into church last Sunday night. That's exactly who it means. Insignificant people in the world's eyes. So there it is, Jesus' instruction on mission. The church's great commission, 
That's verse 1, Sam, of your hymn. Perseverance in adversity, that's verse 2. Fearless acknowledgement of Jesus. Uncompromised allegiance to the king. Privileged representatives of Jesus. And remember, remember, remember that chapter 10 is preceded by chapters 8 and chapter 9. Our confidence is in the king, his authority, and his mission. And where does it all end? Chapter 28. And these glorious words that are not primarily, I guess, or not only a commission to us, but a reminder in whose name we go. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore you and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the great privilege and responsibility of participating in your mission on the earth. What a privilege it is that we are your representatives to tell people of the King and to see them come to trust the King. Lord, there are parts of this passage that are so very searching. We pray, Lord, that each of us in our own lives and in our different ways would give our first love to the Lord Jesus. And as we consider the implications of that, We pray that you would gently and graciously reassure us that you are no man's or no woman's debtor. And to be called to the side of Christ, whatever the cost of that, is right and safe. And if you care for two sparrows who are two a penny in this world, will you not care for us? Will you not care for us as a church? If we are bold and strategic and visionary and try our very best to do all we can, will you not be with us like you have been? Lord, much I guess, from these words, to sort out in our hearts and lives. But we pray, Lord, that throughout today, we would be conscious, perhaps, of the final words of the Lord Jesus, of the great privilege of being his representatives on the earth. We pray in his name. Amen.